I want to start this week by sending an extra shout out to Dr. Eugene Rogers, who joined me last week in the third movement uh, to talk about all sorts of stuff. You know, we talked about his role with the uh, Washington National Chorus and um, transforming art spaces and activism and all that sort of thing. But one thing I want to underscore from our conversation last week, Scott, is that um I hear from so many black musicians, especially black musicians who work in uh, Western classical spaces, that when they get on stage and they play the spiritual or they uh, sing the, the gospel tune or whatever, in predominantly white spaces, it always feels weird because they say folks are just sitting there staring at them, while in black spaces or even at a church or something, it's so much more participatory and, you know, folks hooting and hollering and clapping mm-hmm. from the audience. It's just, it provides a different vibe. So what I wanted to ask you is what determines your music venue demeanor when do you feel comfortable letting your hair down and yelling and hollering and clapping along maybe even singing along versus sitting quietly (laughs) just like just like everyone else do you feel like you other people have to be doing it before you let loose or do you feel comfortable being the first one there was a series uh in downtown saint paul at the james j hill library this beautiful three-story uh tall interior building with gothic columns and everything Mm -hmm. there was a uh, every third thursday of the month was the real phonic radio hour and uh molly Mayer was the host Mm -hmm. eric koskinen and uh, steve burgeon were the two guys leading the house band and they would bring in all these famous people each week and they only sold about 200 tickets, so it was an intimate but yet semi-crowded sort of vibe. Yeah, and there I felt very at home. The uh, you know the other people that were there were, um, you know, just aficionados who didn't want to uh, deal with a, a whole arena mess. Sure. You know? So this small venue, that's it's, it's got to be like an intimate thing. And then when you're in that intimate space, you feel like you can sort of be one yeah. with the performance. Because and... let me tell you something. Ever since the pandemic, I have no mood for crowds now. Sure. Yeah, I'm you with you. You know what I'm saying? I'm with and, you there. And the idea of going to an arena show makes my skin crawl right now. Yep. I think more of the point is, though, is that when we talk about transforming art spaces, if we have different sorts of stuff coming from the stage, that means we need different sorts of stuff coming from the audience and maybe a gospel choir sure. needs somebody to so you know what what Dr. Eugene Rogers was saying was he feels that his responsibility oftentimes from the podium is to take the microphone and tell the audience look this sort of music requires a little something different uh, you know we we need to hear how y'all feel about this in the moment i think is w- what he said so anyway I, mm. I just wanted to underscore that part of our conversation from last week because i feel i feel the the musicians who get on those stages and it's a predominantly white audience and folks are just sitting there and staring at you yeah. because that's what you're used to yeah you know but uh, dr eugene rogers made the point in houses of worship you know in uh in other spaces where art is happening and then of course in the traditional concert hall setting that sitting there and being completely quiet may read as respect based on one person's experiences but sure another person's experience they're thinking that you're sitting there bored mm-hmm. while they sweating and doing everything on stage right <laughs> like damn can we get a little <laughs> something from you I, yeah. 
I uh, one 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 thing that you know I, I just wanted to quickly share is uh, one of my first concert experience live in person post quarantine is when I flew to New York. I saw a fire shut up in my bones, but there was also a performance by uh, Flutronics. Mm-hmm. Shout out to uh, Natalie Joachim and Allison Loggins Hole. They uh, closed the concert that I went to with a tune that I feel like I've shared on uh, Triloquy before. It's called Lifelines, and I just want to play a little bit of it just right now. So we have the beat coming in, and then you have the flute doing it. And I found myself kind of neighing in my seat a little bit in the on the hall. And then I caught myself. I was like, wait a minute, th- this is a concert hall. But then I just kept going. I was like, fuck it. Th- this is this is what I'm moving to, and this is how I feel. And I feel like music like this is just one example of how transforming what we hear. You know, this is definitely different from what we typically hear from the stage or have typically heard from the stage, which means my reaction to that needs to be different. Sometimes we can feel out of place or silly or like we're doing too much by Mm -hmm. reacting to the music in that way. But I think it takes the courage of all of us from wherever we're sitting in that concert space to really transform it. A good way to practice, you know, really reacting to the music in the way you want to in those uh, concert spaces is to do that very thing in your car and to not stop doing it when you get to the traffic light or whatever, you know, or you, oh, right, or when you right. take walks with radar. I'm sure it's oh, some, I sing it's in full bops. voice. I'm, oh, yeah. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I don't you care. Say you give them all of it. That I don't care. <laughs> or maybe if there's something you're grooving to, you're dancing yeah, a little bit. You know, course. what What if we all could just uh, let go of those inhibitions? This is something that uh, 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 the Phantom and the Phoenix talked about when they were on Triloquy uh, a couple years ago just folks trying to be too cool or too proper or whatever if we can just shed ourselves of all of that we can really transform all of those spaces hello everyone welcome to opus 147 i think this is damn Uh, this comes out on 420 you celebrating 420 by doing anything special this wednesday or what you do every day anyway (laughs) well when i uh, yeah when i finish up with work i will be uh, responsible enough when i finish up with work yeah i will uh I will observe the holiday, sure. shall we say? Sure. We we have this conversation every year, but it's a, it's a good conversation to have, I think. How has uh, recreational cannabis use and uh, your openness in talking about it shifted, expanded, evolved over the years? You wouldn't have got on the radio when you were 17 years old and said you were smoking a joint. I wouldn't but... have said that around anybody. Sure. Sure. Probably because I didn't have any back then. So what's what's in, what's inspired <laughs> the lowering of those inhibitions? We talked about dancing in the concert hall. So right. you know what? How how is the inhibitions surrounding 420 sort of melted away for, for you? For me, it's seeing everybody else doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, and the more people that you have coming forward and you know being honest about their usage. It gets easier. Yeah. Uh, so I guess this is the this this is the 420 equivalent of the hashtag. It gets better, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't get cheaper. I'm gonna tell you that right now, right? Because <laughs> I've been buying and selling for many years. Anyway, I still maintain when it when it goes full legal. I'll, I bet you with as as good a beard that I put out. I bet you I'd be a good a good grower. And a lot of people before. are talking about the implications of broad <laughs> legality, uh, including one of the most famous 
cannabis advocates ever. We have Tommy Chong. We have Willie Nelson. With you know, there are all sorts Jim of stuff, there are all sorts of folks we can name. But of course, you can't have these conversations without talking about Snoop Dogg. Mm-hmm. He was on uh, the Breakfast Club a few months ago, back in uh, October, and they engaged this conversation of legality and the historical narrative and what that means. So I thought we'd get started today with the downbeat. Uh, where we hear a little bit from Snoop Dogg, him talking about uh, the idea of legalizing cannabis. Let's take a listen. It's America. That's what they do. They steal our shit and make it theirs. Always. Get used to it. But the point is that, you know, if you get smart and you sharpen up, you can actually, you know, financially gain from this. Mm -hmm. That's that's the beauty of it is that it's making more black millionaires. It's making more businessmen. It's making more people focus on not being a... a, um, a street dealer, but a Fortune 500 dealer. And if you really look at us as drug dealers, from the cocaine era, heroin, weed to everything, we were the greatest to ever do it. The greatest to ever do it. And now you're going to legalize it? If you take those parameters and those ramifications off of those criminals, not criminals now because you're legally getting money off of it, and not make them criminals, we'll show you how to get this money. Isn't isn't there something to that? The fact that for generations, decades, you know, as Snoop was saying there, not just cannabis, but all of these different kind of drugs, black people, you know, folks from all backgrounds, but certainly black people have harnessed the power of that sort of entrepreneurship. And now, you know, we can talk about all of the black millionaires and black business owners that uh, come up from it, but I can't help but to connect that to the fact that to have these millionaires, you have to have the backs of people that these millions of dollars are mm-hmm. made off of, not to mention all of the folks in jail. I just feel like for me, measuring uh, the cannabis use on the moral compass of legality, capitalism, you know, money making, it just doesn't run parallel with the spirit of what this medicine does. A, if I want to be a hippie about it, but mm-hmm. B, mm-hmm. Again, there are folks in jail, there are felons because of this same drug that people are becoming millionaires off of. And not enough people have that part of the conversation, in my opinion. I I agree with you. But for me, the expunging the records is the most important piece. Yeah. And not a lot of people are, you know, around in my circles are thinking of it that way. They think about how great it would be to be able to go and buy it at the corner dispensary. Right. The other piece is the bigger part, and that's also, let's face it, that's the part that's keeping it illegal. Mm -hmm. It's another form of control. Right. Because if they expunge those records, then they're going to have a whole bunch more black people, brown people out into the street who were nonviolent offenders, and how are they going to vote? That's the question. So the bottom line is people are going to smoke. People are going to get it, whether it's illegal or not. Yeah. So it, I, I believe that whether or not it's legalized and those records are ex- expunged comes down to that piece there, letting a whole bunch of people out of jail. Many of us have a convenience story, uh, uh, you know, good experiences uh, in legal states. I certainly do. But I have some stories about some of the legal states where I'd rather get it off the street. I mean, I'll I'll just say Illinois being one Mm -hmm. is too expensive. There's too many uh, loopholes you have to jump through. You always have to wait forever. Do, Do you have negative maybe i'm not asking you to call out a state but do you have experiences sell uh, buy, selling buying legal cannabis 
where you feel like just getting it from the street would have been more convenient? Nope. See, good for you, because I, f- I feel like as we talk about broader and this is I smoke weed every day. OK, so this is not me saying I'm not interested in its legalization and decriminalization. I feel like if the Supreme Court banged the gavel and cannabis is legal nationwide, something would be off. I feel like the quality would go down or uh, we, something would be limited. Mm-hmm. I, you, you feel like you can home grow? I, I feel like I, I would kill the plant and then no, be extra would, mad at myself. I would, would 100% be good at that. <laughs> well, you know, I, you know, because this is coming out on 420, I just wanted to uh, speak to that a little bit. I just hope everyone will live their truth when it comes to cannabis. I'm meeting more and more people who prefer to uh, cook it and prepare it and eat it than to smoke because of the smoke and the mm. lungs and all that smoking is my preferred method but I my just, dad down there in arizona getting his chocolate bars where it's legal he said uh, when he came over for dinner he said uh he ate a chocolate bar and went to bed and what a lamp <laughs> came down <laughs> from the ceiling i mean he, no the lamp followed him yeah all oh, right <laughs> <laughs> the lamp followed him to bed See, people of sure. all ages but he talks about uh and, and not this is not a psa but you mentioned your dad. He talked about back pain. And something that I'll never forget him saying is that he was at the dinner table and said he has never been able to imagine what it must feel like to want to kill yourself. But he, he got close. He was feeling, you know, so to have that strong of a statement connected with some back pain. Yeah. And then all I have to do is eat a chocolate bar and it feels better or well, I'm dealt with. You know, said, what are we talking about keeping this stuff illegal? He said he ate one corner of it. Mm-hmm. And didn't feel anything after five minutes. Isn't so that he the had famous story corner. with these edibles? See, <laughs> <laughs> and I went, "Oh, oh, Dad." Yeah. So yeah, he uh, he said that he didn't have back pain for a day and a half after that. So yeah, he sold. Well, in, in in addition to again, like I said, censoring incarcerated people and making sure that we're paying attention to that part of the conversation, expunging people's records when we talk about legalization. We also need to have the courage, again, just like we were talking about the concert hall experience of living your truth. Once upon a time, saying the word weed on a public platform would get you fired from a job, canceled, whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the case to some extent in some parts of the country. So, you know, protect your peace, but also have the courage to really push that boundary. Because if you say something about cannabis use and the way it helps you medicinally or recreationally, there's someone who might be a little shy who's like, oh, yeah, I smoke it too. And and now y'all can, after work, smoke out together. You know, I don't know, just Mm. (laughs) create community in that way, engaging with one another, you know, renewing spaces and renewing narratives just takes courage and takes folks stepping out and and saying their truth and living their truth. I hope y'all will do that with your cannabis on 420. I hope you're smoking something right now, as a matter of fact, as, as you listen to this. I hope you'll do that in concert hall spaces as we work on renewing not only the performance experience, but the audience experience and uh, use that courage to transform the dialogue surrounding this art form of classical music as we were certainly what we do here on Triloquy. Let's get started. Scott Blankenship. And this 
is Triloquy, Opus 147. Real quick, something I've been thinking about lately in a conversation that a lot of people have been having with me, um, the name Garrett McQueen, as much as I love it, as perfect casting as it is, especially that last name McQueen, people have sort of been whispering in my ear, planting seeds in my mind about what my name could be moving forward. I've been talking with especially a lot of Black folks who say that uh, they were named differently in their 40s and 50s and in ways that align more with their renewed selves when it comes mm. to equity. You know, mm -hmm. of course, we can think about Malcolm X and the the slew of uh, civil rights activists who uh, changed their names, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to more Afrocentric names. Um, so that's just something I've been thinking about. Have you ever thought about becoming uh, someone other than Scott Blankenship? Um, when I was five years old, I do remember telling my dad I wanted to be called Jim. Why Jim? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, no, no, we're not. We're not calling you that. <laughs> I, I, won't, I, won't, I won't give you full government, but Scott is even a what they call me sort of name. So right. maybe you're already living yours. I'm, I'm Garrett Paul on, on the paperwork, a, a two name, first name. All right, GP. I don't know, something, something to think about. I, I've been thinking about it more as I've been introducing myself and that mm. came to mind here. Anyway, hello, everyone. This is Triloquy. Welcome to Opus 147. Uh, to returning listeners, thank you so much for continuing to return and help us uh, engage these dialogues and spread the message of decolonizing classical music. For new listeners, if this is your first time checking out Triloquy, this is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and creates proximity between it and the rest of the world, even challenging the very notion of that phrase and the genres of music that we uh, think about when we use that phrase. For more information on Triloquy, visit Triloquy. You can donate there and you can check out past opuses of Triloquy. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution to St. Paul, Minnesota, making sure that artists have a means of creating a living and a life. More on them at springboardforthearts.org. I want to send a thank you to the Peabody Institute of John Hopkins University uh, presenting the next normal ideas, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility for the future of the performing arts. Scott, I had the uh, great pleasure, have the great pleasure of presenting um, on uh, this this project. I talk about uh, the work we do here on Triloquy, my radio work, some of my lectures and, and guest things. Um, and it's just always an honor to be invited by these prestigious so-called classical music institutions to present something different all sorts of great folks um on the on the panels um one of the uh the, the other uh presenter on this uh on, on this symposium besides myself is alexander lloyd Blake, who has also been on Triloquy, he leads Tonality, recently performed with Bjork. So all mm. sorts of great cross-collaboration going on. Uh, you can find more information on uh, The Next Normal, presented by Peabody Institute, on the front page of the Triloquy website. I have a button for you there. And then uh, finally, I just want to uh, send a thank you and an announcement to the Adrian Dunn Singers and the Rise Orchestra of Chicago, presenting Emancipation on April 29th at 7.30. You can find more information on them at harristheaterchicago.org. Incredible things happening as the world continues to open up renewed concert experiences for people open to uh, experiencing all of those things. And we're here to talk about it and to celebrate them. So thank you to all of those folks. Thank you to you for listening. Let's get into movement one. All right, we're going to talk about this Lizzo sketch mm -hmm. <laughs> because there are some things to unpack 
definitely. Oh, I thought you were going to hit the problematic. No, <laughs> no, not problematic because we'll, we'll, we'll get into it. But before, before we talk about uh, that SNL sketch, there's something uh, that I, that crossed my eyes from the Dallas Morning News that I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about. I'm going to go ahead and give this a sharp uh, with the headline Quest Love joining forces with Dallas Symphony for hip hop brunch and deep Ellum. I'm giving the concept and the collaboration mm-hmm. a sharp sure but some of this writing mm-hmm. <laughs> we're we gonna have to get up together let's go ahead and start uh just from the very top it says quest love teaming up with the dallas symphony orchestra for a hip-hop brunch quote doesn't, unquote doesn't rate quite as high on the strange meter as quest love winning an oscar seconds after will smith slapped chris rock stop. but it's a surprising pairing nonetheless <laughs> yeah so let's, let's let's just stop right there what do you what are your thoughts about those opening <laughs> this sentences? is shade from two different suns tell us more from okay so you said two different suns we're on tatooine because number one <laughs> quest love winning an oscar he, he frames that as strange mm-hmm. but it's not as strange as a symphony hip hop pair up, you, you you see how the anti blackness will just jump out and people don't even hear what they're saying or realize what they're doing. But I'm sure he's just joking. Oh yeah, quote all unquote, right. quote unquote, hip hop brunch. Mm-hmm. See, Will Smith has messed it up for all of us because if I walk down the street or somebody walk down the street and see him and smack the shit out of him, now we wrong. <laughs> You know, he can he can call Questlove strange for or his winning anyway. <laughs> Do you, you hear me though? You said Do this you was gonna me? be short. <laughs> <laughs> and even even with all of that shade aside, the point But it's go ahead. it really sets a tone though for certain people the, who are paying attention. The though. point that the writer is making is that hip hop meet orchestra is something very strange. For us, in the conversations we have and and the visions we have for the the industry, this is not strange. This is the direction that we need to go in. But it makes me think that maybe our goals and our perspective on where the industry is going and where it needs to go clouds our vision of what the status quo is still Mm. or, or, or what's being maintained. Do you ever feel that you're spinning classical records, so called classical records every week? Is there, is is it the is it the same old? Are are our conversations blinding us from the fact that things really aren't changing all that much? Um, we are coming up on seven to twelve years. Is all it would take for a change? Correct. <laughs> sure. All, all I'm I'm just sitting back here going, okay, yeah, yeah. You all want you all want to yell at me. And then all of a sudden, it, you it start. You go, oh damn, it's been five years. Mm-hmm. Oh snap. And we're telling the same stories. This Hopefully is, not. You're making a you're making a very good point for for folks who weren't here for it. <laughs> when I was fired from NPR, they interviewed Scott, and he said, "You know, Garrett is forward thinking. You know, they got ten to fifteen years before his ideas will take hold." And people were really upset with you about that. But your point was, "Well, look at the material." Mm-hmm. You know, your 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 point was, Garrett's ideas are far ahead of the game. That's not happening right now. I don't see it happening anytime soon. Is that wrong? No. <laughs> and imagine my surprise thinking that I was calling out my industry. That'd be you pissed them off. And the next day I wake up to something completely different. But hey, you know, um, time time is going to tell. That's all I have to say. Time is going to tell. So is it more performances like Questlove and the Dallas Symphony hip hop meeting orchestral music. Is it just more of them that will normalize it or is it 
something deeper? Is there a, a is there a, a culture shift we need to make? I don't know. I, I do think that you're right in a regard that it's still contextualized as the extra content. Right. You know, the pops, right? The specialty. It's not. It's or only appealing to a certain set. So I don't think it's been normalized yet. No, mm-hmm. but more frequent and. It is definitely getting to a situation where if you haven't done one yet, maybe your orchestra doesn't have the resources because, you know, it, it's common, but it's not normalized. I'm right. Not not common. It's more frequent, but it's not normalized. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and even folks with inside uh, the from inside the institution, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra are still contextualizing this as little strange or different. So I'm going to read here. Uh, it says here, yes, it's unusual. But that's what makes it interesting, DSO president and CEO uh, Kim Noltemi said in an email interview. Uh, they go on to say, this unique pairing is why we are thrilled to be a part of this project. It helps the community connect with and think about our musicians and their art form in new ways. I will agree with that. It, it offers a perspective for folks that's different about these orchestral musicians and what they do for a living. I think that community connection is something that we talk a lot about every arts organization has a community engagement of wing of their institution or, mm-hmm. or something like it, but we often fail to actually connect. Uh, right. Scott, you, you, you work in public radio, you know, being engaged by the community is how it survives literally, you know, with, uh, contributions from the community, uh, with all of your years in, uh, classical radio, public radio considered, what does genuine community engagement at this stage of the game look like? Being on a national service, you have to speak in generalities a lot of the time. Sure. So that's handcuffing in one regard. Yeah. But I really think engaging the community is going to mean um, more of the community given the platform and the tools and the resources. Right, right. And... With the, with with the way the job market moves, you know, people are realizing that they don't necessarily have to be attached to a big radio station, television station, or production house to get content out there. Right, right. And so that's making it tough for the brick and mortar guys to to get people. Yeah, yeah. But that's where the real work is: is mm-hmm. trying to uh, bring in hosts and presenters. Curators, that, that, all and of curate that. all that yeah. that actually are from the communities that you're trying to engage. That's yeah. what it means. And and I, I I work hard to use the word communities instead of community as often as Why possible. Even you know, like think about it. We we say the black community as as if we're one, but and and mm. in many ways we are and can be. But I, I I say black communities because there are black folks who are already engaged by Western classical music. There are black folks who aren't. So mm. when we um, spread that out more generally, when we talk about our local communities, I think we have to pay more attention to engaging more of them. In 1965, a pop's con concert, you know, for people who had any proximity to an orchestra looked very different than what a pops concert needs to look like today to really genuinely engage more of those communities. So I mm. think what uh, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra is doing here uh, is is really good. I want to uh, just point out a couple more things. They talk a little bit more about Questlove for the Dallas News readers who have, for some reason, never heard of Questlove. Who so. haven't stayed up late. <laughs> so, you know, they talk about how uh, Questlove is the drummer of the Rude. 
shoots and does a, a late night show and all sorts of things. And and the writer, the one of the things that the writer gets right is, is in other words, defining Questlove as a drummer is like calling Charles Darwin a botanist. Weren't we just talking about that? Don't 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 mm. uh, quote don't call me a rapper. Mm-hmm. As I say, don't call me a bassoonist. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't call you a national host producer. You're so much more. You know. <laughs> yeah. And then there's one more aspect I wanted to uh, pull up. I need to find it here. Oh yes, it says granted. He isn't the first rock or R&B artist to team up with the Dallas Symphony Orchestra. St. Vincent did it in 2015, um, and Erica Badu performed with them, collaborated with them back in 2019. So there is precedent, and the the snowball is is kind of rolling. And I think you know this this most recent collaboration is what we need to continue the normalization of of, of these sorts of things. I see what you're saying, but it has that that's years apart between those things. That's true. That so that me, should be happening every for month. Me, or, for know. me, I'm saying it needs to be a series. Yeah. You, want, you want to be taken seriously and not have it looked upon as the side piece. Mm-hmm. Make it a series. <laughs> not, the, not the side piece. <laughs> what? Is that wrong? No, you're right. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're Is right. that wrong? It's just putting it into using that language around it, I think, really contextualizes it even more. I was talking with somebody not too long ago, and they were talking about the ghettoization of the first half mm. of comedy. Concerts, you know, that's when you'll have your new thing or your fun thing. But the second half is, is for the ba- is the Brahms or the Beethoven Symphony or or whatever, <laughs> you know. But I, I think you're making a good point. If if we want to not make it look like we're side piecing, shout out to all the side pieces, I guess. If we're not a side piecing, let's um, let's do it. Let's do a hip hop <laughs> retrospective. Sure, let's bring in the you know, Sir Mix a Lot history. And, you know, sure, and it, and it doesn't, you know, strictly have to be the hip-hop. You know, we talked about the R&B collaborations. There's mm. rock collaborations sure. that uh, work really well. I'm sure there's uh, some blues and country musicians who you would love All to see fully realized with an orchestra. So yeah. let's push our arts institutions to do more of this. This isn't unusual. It's what we need to renew the art form. Uh, so we're going to get into um, the next accidental uh, with an example. You know, I, I, I mentioned that Erica Badu performed with them back in 2019. So I found a performance by the Deviation String Quartet, uh, where they're sampling some of this music of uh, Erica Badu, a tune of hers called Don't You Know, and really I love realizing it, you know, with those live strings. So here's mm. a little bit of that to get us into our next accidental. I'll link this performance in the description. It looks like they're performing in one of the cars of the London Eye. Did you ride? Have you ever ridden the London Eye in London? The giant Ferris wheel. Oh Ferris no! Wheel? Yeah, no, giant no, Ferris no, wheel. Uh-uh. Yeah, that thing costs, I think, something like 40 pounds they to can, ride once around. I did it because keep we it. were there. But anyway, what a vibe, you know, and not maybe not even just for the concert hall. I would love to hear that sort of music live at a small table with Dell, you or whoever, you know, have a, a little cocktail, some Hennessy there. Mm. You know, the, the really uh, cool spots, you know, I can, you know, smoke my joint there at the table and just enjoy 
classical music as we define it al- alongside one of our stars, Erica Badu. We just need to normalize it. It just needs to be more. I don't know. And, and maybe that's a simplistic way of thinking about the road forward. But if an arts institution, if an orchestra, a radio station, whoever, yeah, really made the decision to do something like this once a month, not once a season or once every other season, but of four weekends of concerts, if one of them was dedicated to R&B or hip hop or some other so-called fusion, maybe we could, you know, change more of the field, but it it just Mm. takes more regularity with that sort of thing. There was a time I'm sure where uh, music by John Adams was once every other season, or or maybe even a Shostakovich symphony didn't happen all the time. Mm. That sort of stuff is regular now. It's completely normal. Um, So we need to do that. And I think it starts not only with more regularity, but making sure that uh, we're watching our language surrounding and not calling those sorts of fusions unusual or Don't call weird or whatever piece. or and especially when you start talking about oh it's strange for folks like quest love to win an oscar because again i feel like that's the anti-blackness jumping right out it framed it <laughs> right away did it not anyway so shout out to the uh dallas symphony orchestra i'm trying to think i don't think i've ever been to dallas i spent lots of time in san antonio and austin um a little bit of time in houston but dallas I'm not me. I know the show Dallas. I'm sure you yep. watched that. Of course. And yep. and those were some French horns at that opening. We'll talk about that theme uh, uh, another time. That Erica Badu track, I had that on a on a mix CD that somebody gave me without a playlist. Uh-huh. So for like a year, I was grooving to that, having no idea who it was, and I thought I'd never know. <laughs> not like I just found out, but I'm saying right, that right. you know that was all. I'm saying is when you make a playlist for somebody, write the stuff down. And, you know, Erica Badu has made a lot of money selling candles and incense that smell like mm. her. Mm-mm. They say it smells good. <laughs> they sell out before <laughs> you would, can buy I was them. Say, See, she puts would... them on the Internet and in five minutes they're gone. <laughs> so they must smell like something. <laughs> I'm sure they smell like something. <laughs> uh, and something good. Anyway, shout out to Questlove, Erica Badu, Dallas Symphony Orchestra and everybody. Uh, we're going to uh, round out this first movement. Uh, I don't know. You watched the the SNL orchestra skit, right? What accidental would you give it? Because <laughs> I want to give it a fl- I want to give it a flat. But what do you think? Uh, I I think that it perpetuated a lot of stereotypes, so I would give it a natural. Give it a nice. Oh, that's the sharp button. Give it a give it a natural yep. there. Um, refresh people's memory. So uh, this past Saturday, and I didn't even know this was happening. We happened to be home having a lazy Saturday night. I'm like, okay, well, who happens to be performing on SNL? That's always my question. Now who's hosting? <laughs> who's performing? <laughs> right, and right. Del was looked it up and it was Lizzo. And it turns out she was also hosting. Anyway, she did a lot of fun skits. Uh, d- the performance were great, did some uh, flute playing, but one skit in particular Came right into our sphere. Yeah. Talk about it a little bit. She comes in to sub in with the DeVry Institute Symphony Orchestra. Put some respect on them. (laughs) (laughs) So she comes in to uh, play flutes. And, you know, we were, uh, she she is unable to play flute without twerking. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's the the running joke. Yeah. Now, my question is, we were talking about the, the... the whole sketch as allegory for our whole industry right so before we get started uh what what's what's the black cast member's name keenan okay so the the longest running cast member on the show in in the show's history right so he seemed to be all of us (laughs) (laughs) right so let's 
so 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 let's break it down here from uh the beginning so first of all we we have it set up where we have you know the devry symphony orchestra um <laughs> and Everyone's kind of laughing at that, but the conductor, who Lizzo calls your honor, by the way, when she walks in, <laughs> you know, the conductor is like, oh, no, this is, you know, very serious. You know, we are this group. I think basically what that was speaking to is that orchestral musicians and the orchestral industrial complex takes itself far more seriously than anyone else does. Mm-hmm. Once I can a, see that. Once upon a time really revering someone in their Downton Abbey uniform was a thing, especially if they were holding an instrument. At this point, I feel like it's a joke. Last week, you know, remember when I was reading the statement uh, from T and T was talking about when there is a a challenge of uh, legitimacy, you know, I I think some of that legitimacy when it comes to that traditional aesthetic of classical music has melted away. And at best, it's novelty. At worst, it's just not taken seriously by most people, as outlined in the skit. Everyone laughed, right? Mm-hmm. When he talked about the DeVry Symphony Orchestra. Sure. I think that it also reinforces the stereotype that there is no crossover. The idea that she couldn't sit and play, mm-hmm. you know, that she had to twerk, you know, keeping it on that end of the spectrum. And the classical players obviously were not able to. They were able to sit and play, but they couldn't twerk and play. I mean, I think that speaks to two things. First, participating in orchestral spaces for so many people requires a diminution of their talent or their artistic Mm. ability. It's hard to get someone who can play anything. I'm just trying to think of the musician. I mean, let's say Wynton Marcellus. He could sit in anybody's orchestra in the trumpet section and Mm -hmm. and play all the notes and all of that would be fine. That wouldn't be the full manifestation of what he is capable of. And I feel like that's the case for so many folks as we continue to have access to more, as more people have access to more. We talk about instruments and music and YouTube to copy stuff and Mm -hmm. and X, Y, and Z. I, I feel like uh, that was one of the other indictments, you know, of the orchestra industry in that skit is that the folks in those seats are by no means the most talented or most interesting of musicians. I learned that when I started uh, doing more session, I hate to say session work, like I was really doing that sort of work, but I, I have credits on a number of pop albums and that sort of thing. And I would come to the studio, this is down in Memphis, I would go to the studio and they would be like, all right, well, just play something woodwindy or something, and, you know, and you have to really have that, that, uh, that imagination and that creativity to dig into that. You know, that if you want to scare a classically trained musician, ask them to improvise something, you know? <laughs> so, you know, but yeah. it's basically what I'm getting at is that it, that the skit just shows the box that so many of these folks are, are in on those stages. So the overall question I had for you is, did you find it funny? I found it, I was, yes, the the short answer is yes, but the more in-depth answer is that I feel like a lot of of the people laughing don't realize that the joke was on them. (laughs) I feel like if there were any orchestral musicians across, I'm going to say it, if there were any orchestral musicians 
across the country laughing at that skit, they don't actually realize that we're laughing at you. We're laughing at your profession. We're laughing at how seriously you take these same old concert programs that could have been recreated back in 1950, in some cases 1850, Mm. if if it's the right concert. And we're supposed to have some reverence or respect for that. Uh, beyond what we have for Lizzo, who can twerk and play the uh, flute and do all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's 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 something. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the a couple of the other things I wanted to um, touch on. You know, you brought up uh, Keenan Keenan Thompson. I want to shout out um, our friend John Kelly because he was in my inbox ready to break all this down, <laughs> and and something that he pulled from it that I had not thought of um, was Keenan Thompson's character representing. Black folks who, despite all of the barriers, make it into those spaces and those spaces affirm themselves as diverse and equitable. Look at who we have here. But you don't actually listen to those people or consider the sensibilities of those folks. So we got Lizzo in this skit twerking and the conductor is like, oh, nobody wants to see that. And as a matter of fact, let, let's 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 find that spot and, and play it. that i mean i wouldn't say nobody so we can so we can laugh at the one black person in the orchestra saying hey i'm okay with that but i think there's something to that we are often the only ones in the group and what we affirm or what we want to see, if it's another black person doing something and we're trying to support them, we're just kind of brushed off with conductors and other folks saying, oh, well, actually, no one wants to see that. I feel like those assumptions are made all over the place across arts institutions, certainly in uh, opera, certainly in radio. Oh, well, our audience doesn't want to hear that, or especially when we talk about day parting, because sure. that's a big thing in yep. radio. Yep. We make assumptions about what people want to hear in certain times of the day. Mm-hmm. And sure, we can dig into the data and and, uh, and all of selection that stuff, bias. but 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 let's face it: a lot of these assumptions that we make, I feel like, are outdated and certainly inequitable as displayed there. Uh, John Kelly clearly listens to Triloquy. And by the way, you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I was talking about being at a party and I made like four new listeners to the podcast sure. for me testifying there. Uh-huh. It was at his house. Okay. So there you go. Okay. Um, Scotty Appleseed. I'm and then, you know, the, it out. The, the big thing that I think this skit sort of portrayed uh, is that at the end, you know, they're they're all like, well, you know, if we can't just have one person twerking on stage, why don't we all twerk? So you have all these white people with these instruments, you know, looking silly and X, Y, and Z. And I feel like that is some people's vision of renewal or transformation of the spaces, but we aren't actually celebrating excellence in a new way we're celebrating the novelty of people who have never had to engage something different engaging it differently and the fact that they're even considering it is enough much less you know not actually interpreting these things to the best that they can be interpreted so let me let me speak specifically let's say and we're treating this skit as an allegory. So let's say that an orchestra wanted to incorporate dance of somehow uh, of some type into the performance. We've seen the HBCU marching bands that can do all sorts of choreography <laughs> and play music and sound great. You can imagine groups like the Ill Harmonic Orchestra, how we could figure something out 
if, when it can, comes to choreography and make it look fly. If the, let me, if, I'm going to just spit one out. If the Cleveland Orchestra, they taught the Cleveland Orchestra uh, some sort of choreography to do in performance, it probably would not look great, but people would be clapping for it anyway and just excited because of the novelty of seeing these people attempt. See, we aren't allowed to attempt. You know, we have to go over and beyond. But on the converse, you know, just the attempt is enough. Is enough to get a standing ovation. And I feel like that's when we talk about tokenization, uh, when we talk about uh, the normalization of white mediocrity in, in many ways and how that is allowed where it isn't allowed on the other side. I just feel like this skit said a lot. And I hope folks are thinking about it in that way, because that's certainly the way that I was thinking about it. You know, this wasn't a I don't know. I'll, I'll go as far as to say that I don't feel like the skit was a celebration of our art form. This wasn't SNL platforming an orchestra as a means of legitimizing it or showing what is capable or the diversity that exists in it or any of that. It was making fun of the, mm-hmm. the the orchestral industry, the orchestral ecosystem, it was an indictment of it. And I think that in itself is proof that we're running out of time. Orchestras and all of these arts institutions are running out of time because making fun of them is what's normal and is and is what no one bats an eye at. Right. It would be different if we had, you know, someone, you know, a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was when we were talking about uh, the Oscars, you know, Beyonce always has a black orchestra up there. Nas has his black orchestra up there. You know, we so it's not that it's making fun of its perception. So we need to normalize something different if we're really going to help this thing survive. But according to Thor, it's still not as high on the strange meter as Questlove winning an Oscar seconds after Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Yeah, I'm going to wait for his apology video from from that. Anyway, <laughs> well, that's, that's what we got this week uh, for the for the first movement to get us into uh, our second movement. I want to um, get into a Lizzo track. So on stage, especially on TV shows and these award ceremonies, you don't really get to hear Lizzo play, play the flute, you right. know, because it's a lot going on, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, but she is a beautiful musician, a beautiful flautist. You, I think her flute has its own Instagram account. So you can go listen to all of that stuff. And even before she was famous, those uh, YouTube videos still exist where she's playing solos and improvising. Well, um, on her on her uh, big album, Because uh, I Love You, I think was the name of the album, there's a track on there called Heaven Help Me. And it ends with a flute solo. And let me tell you, Scott, when this tune came out, I was... In a time of my life, I was still working the overnights where things were stressful. I was suffering in many ways. And listening to this flute solo for the very first time just brought me to tears. So as fun as it is to watch Lizzo be silly and do all of this stuff, she's a brilliant classical musician who we need to honor as such. And Beethoven and all those folks don't have nothing to do with it. So here's the tail end of Heaven Help Me as performed by Lizzo to get us into our second movement.
I'm sure you can imagine a time in your life or a situation where just the soft flute playing with only the right hand on the piano can hit that right heart string. Mm -hmm. And here we are in tears all Mm -hmm. of a sudden. So she evidently is also uh, on a TV series, isn't that right? Big girls or something? Yeah, and there are um, there's some local folks in that show. One huh. of uh, one of my constituency mates with uh, Springboard for the Arts is on that show. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so some there's there's some stuff happening. We you know we can have conversations about Lizzo all day. Of of course, Lizzo has uh, been at the head of many of the conversations surrounding body politics and um, fat phobia mm-hmm. and normalizing the word fat not as a pejorative but as a descriptor and and something that is not bad so mm-hmm. you know just uh, and of course the connections to prince you know you know she worked with him at uh, paisley park for a little bit and hmm. um anyway and an incredible artist and uh I, I appreciate her being on snl i think that whole skit though let me repeat myself was an indictment of the industry mm. we need to normalize a renewal of these spaces to where it doesn't make sense to make fun of us, and I'll put myself in it. It doesn't make sense to make fun of us. It makes sense to celebrate us, and that's what I think um, is important and one of the many benefits that we can grab from changing up the way we, we view all of this stuff. Well, we're here in the second movement where Scott and I share some music that we have been celebrating all week, some music we've been living with. It's uh, it's still uh, National International Guitar Month, so how about you get us started? Sure. So... Recently, I find myself with every moment of the day accounted for. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm writing everything into the calendar so that I'm spending just certain amounts of time so that I don't forget stuff, right? And a bunch of reminders and all these sorts of things. Um, I also started, um, when I do finally have some spare time, I started watching Severance. Mm. So for those who haven't been watching Severance, uh, people work for this certain company that have a surgical procedure that separates their work life in their brain. It separates the work person and the home person. People will go under the knife for work. Y'all better than me. And go ahead. So doesn't that sound great that you'd be, you know, like, oh, man, all I'm going to have to worry about is when I'm off work. You that know? sounds horrifying to right. me, actually. So <laughs> what I feel like lately, so Im- imagine the person getting into the elevator to go to work. You have your day inside. You don't see the sun. And when you go home and those elevator doors close, when they open back up again, you're walking back into the office. Right. That's kind of how I have felt yeah. recently mm-hmm. is that I'm constantly accounted for in doing something, right? And since it's International Guitar Month, uh, I wanted to bring in Paul Galbraith, a Scottish guitarist who uh, plays in a very unorthodox fashion that I've, you know, kind of like Stanley Jordan last week. I've not seen anybody play like him. And he plays a lot of the traditional Bach and Spanish stuff and all that. But he has a release called In Every Lake, The Moon Shines Full. And there's like 46 tracks on this. And they're anywhere from 30 seconds to two and a half minutes. Mm. And it's folk music from, uh, well, it says here, from uh, folk tunes from Spain, Scotland, Greece, Hungary, and Norway. So there's none of it is anything that I've heard before. I have it on my phone. My phone is in my pocket. And as I'm going through all the motions of my highly regimented day, it's like this is a little soundtrack, like a little Truman Show soundtrack mm. going on. But there was one in particular called uh, Song of the Hebrides, which I'm guessing, um, I know that I'm not wrong, this must be one of the Scottish folk tunes. Sure. And there's a lilt in it that 
I don't know. It just, it, it was really working for me in the moment. He plays an eight-string guitar, and he has a resonator box, a wooden resonator box with F-holes in it, with a little pin that he sets. His guitar is on a pin, like a cello pin. Mm -hmm. So it's so he's holding it much like a cello. You, it's it's unorthodox. I've not seen anybody play like that before, but you can't argue with the sound oh, that no, he gets. Absolutely not. Connect this more with what you were saying about all of your time being accounted for. Are you saying that this music is helping it you you not feel so regimented or 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 clear, clear that part up for me? Sure. Um, it felt like it was a soundtrack. And since everything was between thirty and two thirty seconds and two and a half minutes, mm. When the music would change, I'm off doing something else, and that would be another scene. I see what you're saying. So almost like it was being curated to what I was doing, emptying the laundry, um, walking with radar, uh, cleaning up, whatever it was. It just as everything changed, as the task changed, the music was too. So in the in the monotony of things or in the busyness of things, at least there's some backdrop to it or, 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 or a way for the music to enhance the experience of and it all. It made the time pass a little bit slower because I'll tell you, that's another thing, man. It just feels like everything it, is speeding by. It feels like everything is just going by so quick. The weed will help with that, you know. Here's, here's, what does? Here's, here's some more of the songs of the Hebrides. It's kind of like you're in that boat riding toward the Hebrides, you know, those those ocean caves, and yeah. the, the boat just goes away until you can barely see it anymore. I, I, I feel like I know you well enough to know that you wouldn't be in that boat going up <laughs> under those oh, underwater no. caves. <laughs> no, 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 no. But the whole album does have, I don't, I don't know, it, it, it would be great for, for different settings with the full moon. You know, we've got the pink moon going on right now mm. as we record. And I don't know, there was some synergy there for me, and it seemed to it seemed to complement this idea, this feeling that all I'm doing is something work oriented. Yeah, at yeah. Every moment. Yeah, in every lake, the moon shines full. So a, a project for everyone to go check out as you go through your day to day. It's not too heavy. You know, we were talking yeah. about day parting earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, one one of the things said is that people don't want something too heavy in the morning. Listen, I've I've had people 
thank me for the music that sounds like that first thing in the morning. I've sure. had people thank me for the Superman theme at 5.30 a.m. because yeah. that helps get them into a mood to do <laughs> but to would, other things. You, you wouldn't know? put in like Radetzky March at 2 a.m. though. Maybe. We'll see. Because if I'm driving home from the bar, <laughs> I might need to clap along. What see, bar? Isn't, isn't that interesting? We were talking about <laughs> at the beginning, we were talking about audience participation. Mm-hmm. They clap to that, don't they, every they year? They do. At the, at the New Year's uh, Day Parade that mm-hmm. has its <laughs> own races. A, a concert that has its own, you know, racist and problematic implications. We've talked about that here before. Though. We have. Uh, anyway, so yeah, definitely go check out that out uh, that project, everybody. And every lake, the moon shines full. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, a, a, still a classical route, an American classical route, as realized by the Japanese. It's a, a weird sort of uh, hole I found myself in this week. Uh, before I talk about my pick. What's your relationship, Scott, with anime? Are there anime shows that you watched or Love followed uh, it, regularly? Yeah. What are some of them? Um, I didn't. I didn't follow the TV show Dragon Ball, but after visiting when I visited Japan, I did pick up a whole bunch of those trading cards. Okay, but uh, the the ones that come to mind for me are Lensman, uh, Akira, and also there was a video game out that was laser disc based called Cliffhanger, mm. and that was all anime. You had what a what an incredible game that was, and the art was fantastic, all anime style. See, and there are a lot of folks, a lot of black folks that love anime and are deeply into it. I know Dragon Ball Z and Pokemon and Sailor Moon, the ones right. that most people know, but I, I really don't know much about the genre. So Dell and I were sitting around on Saturday evening. We just got back in town from Tennessee attending uh, his sister's wedding. Congratulations, by the way, to uh, Carrie and Dana. Um, so we just you know, were having a lazy evening, and he turns on a cartoon network to see what's on in the middle of the evening probably about 11:30 a.m. and 11:30 p.m. and a show called Lupin the 3rd part mm. 6 comes out you know that sure show? Is, is that vampire based is that a- i i know nothing oh, about okay. it <laughs> but it the, the the way that it looks and the uh and the animation is, is really interesting but it's the music that caught my ear so i'm reading my book i'm sitting in the chair reading a book and he's watching this anime and all of a sudden i hear this track and it takes me right away from my book The artwork from Lupin the Third looks exactly like the artwork from Cliffhanger the video game. Oh, really? Okay. Look at so, these two. So, so there we are connecting. So I, I I had to do a little research to find this track because it's just happening in the in the mix of the show, and it uh, turns out it's uh, a tune called Tornado 2015 by a band called You. And the explosion. Had you ever heard of you and the explosion? That's the name of the band. No. So it's a so <laughs> it's a great. It's a, a Japanese uh, jazz band um, with much of the music written by someone named Yuji Ono. Um, and what I found so interesting about it was the brilliant way that uh, that American classical style of jazz was being harnessed in a way that just grabbed my attention. You know, it's not like I heard some, and no shade to this saxophone or nothing. That's not what I'm saying, but I just heard this clearly jazz aesthetic that can't help but to pull you 
away mm. from what you're doing, especially if there, if there is a jazz flute involved, I'm putting down my book and, and seeing what's happening. So I've been spending some time with with this track. Again, I know nothing about Lupin the Third Part Six. I think is the entire title of the show. Um, the the episode was Episode Zero. That's how I was able to eventually find the the piece of music. But incredible, incredible uh, sounds here by you and the Explosion Band. Here's a little bit more of that. It's dope. I, 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 I just love it. A lot of people can contextualize that as cheesy or or whatever. But in addition to orchestras doing the Questlove and Erica mm. Badu collaborations, if an orchestra is playing stuff like that, I'm paying attention. I'm not going to be sitting there bored, falling asleep. The, uh, the, the animators of the show knew well enough to put music by you and the explosion band in this to go with the vibe and grab people's attention and it grabbed my attention this week. So I hope y'all will go check out tornado 15 by you and the explosion band. All right. So this week's third movement guest is Jerry Lynn Johnson. Jerry Lynn Johnson uh, is incredible and someone who I've been uh, wanting to get on the show for a long time. So I'm glad we uh, could finally uh, find the time to sit down and speak with each other. If you don't know the name Jerry Lynn Johnson, uh, she is a conductor, the first black woman uh, to win an international conducting prize. So historical in that way, uh, a business owner and an advocate. Uh, She leads Philadelphia's Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra. And she joins me today to talk about the journey of uh, creating and sustaining that organization, what it means to be a black woman in the field, and you know, even more specifically, what it means to be coined as that, where we started mm-hmm. in our conversation. Um, I said, if you go to your Wikipedia page, the first thing is that it says is Jerry Lynn Johnson is an African-American woman conductor. I mean, just checking all the boxes there. Right. <laughs> so uh, that's where we begin our conversation. I just ask her how she feels about that, how you know, being coined in that way and what it mean. So uh, to get us into um, our conversation, we're going to use a little music, Scott, by Patsy Cline. Nice. At, at one point in our conversation, you know, Jerry Lynn Johnson is talking about when we deal with these fusions, when we talk about pop concerts, that there shouldn't be a separation of excellent music and excellent musicianship. So when she thinks about excellent music, one of the folks that she thinks of is Patsy Cline, as we all should. I'm going to uh, highlight Patsy Cline's Tennessee waltz since you know Dell and i mm. just left tennessee yeah. beautiful rolling hills you know the smoky mountains just you know I, and i only saw a couple of confederate flags this time there's there's <laughs> there's a little bit of ugly with everything beautiful but you know uh patsy klein's music and her tennessee waltz is certainly something that we have to honor not only as american classical but as a great example of just excellence in music so here's a bit of this tennessee waltz to get us into my conversation with the one and only maestro jerry lynn johnson i was waltzing with my darling to the I happen to see I introduced her 
to my loved one And while they were waltzing My friend stoned my sweetheart I I have had to contend with the realities of um, search engine optimization <laughs> in mm-hmm. terms of when people are looking for things. And so th- that really wasn't like this kind of label identifier of all that. But I mean, I just, for me, I've had to contend with the realities of living in this modern age and how people look for things and how people perceive things and how people might stumble onto things. Mm-hmm. Because it was interesting to me, I was talking to, um, someone at at a, at a management agency who was contacting me, um, wondering if I was interested in going with them for representation for something. And the reason she found me was through a contact in classical music that she had known for years. And she had said, look, do you know of any black female conductors? He's like, you do. And I'm like, how, how is that not? You just search on the internet and then there's a whole bunch. So that's why I was kind of like, that, that's very interesting to me. Because mm-hmm. I know your generation are very tech savvy and can use an internet search to find things. But yet the, <laughs> so that's why I was saying like, okay, I let me let me be a little more, you know, smart and sophisticated. I mean, you know, as I can be for yeah. Yeah. someone who posts on Instagram and really needs to. Um, but yeah, so that that was how that came about. Um, it just really reminds that, me of that conversation uh, of being black in this field requires a level of activism or, you know, we can't just focus in on the artistry. I just wonder if that distracts from it, from, from your own perspective, you know? Well, you know, it was, you know, I, earlier I, in my career, I would always have to do interviews where I would have to answer these questions about, you know, what is it like being an African-American woman conductor? Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, the immediate answer was, well, I don't know any other way, so I have nothing to compare it to. I, I don't know. It, it is how it is for me as, as a human, you know, existing, doing what I do. The larger question is that, that that question kind of points sort of outwards to is the level of discomfort with my existence, because it's not a problem for me, but because you're asking about it, it's clearly something of interest and a problem for you. Mm-hmm. So how does it feel for you that I am an African-American female conductor? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's, it's a reflexive sort of question. Yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, that's really interesting. I never thought about it that way. I'll have to chew on that myself. <laughs> so, something that I did learn about you that I didn't know was uh, your background in religious studies. I, I live with um, uh, someone who has a bachelor's in Bible, you know, so we have a lot of those oh. sorts of conversations. I, I, what was what was uh, were there intersections between your music studies and your religious studies that panned out in interesting ways in the early parts of your education? So, you know, I, um, you know, when, when people see that on, on my CV, they, they assume it's, it's Bible studies or religion or are somewhat related to the church as in church music. But actually, um, I had two entirely separate degrees at Wellesley. I, I double majored in music and religion. And, and my concentration actually was, was in East Asian religion, specifically in Buddhism, more specifically in Zen. And mm-hmm. so that was, that was my, that was my focus. And, and I have had a, a love of world religions for as long as I could read. I, you know, my grandmother started me out on Bible stories and I would just quote, like, just, you know, I just knew all the Bible stories, like all the trivia about like, you know, Meshach, you, you know, and Abednego, I know all the things. Yeah, like, Negro, yeah. All, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. 
and parents like, how does she know all this stuff? Because you know, I was my first books that I was given were like Bible, like Bible stories for children. Mm-hmm. So I can do like all these characters. But just you know, growing up, I suppose, just me and and my personality, just naturally introverted. You know, I for me, there's you know, there's really only three universal truths. There's you know, math. Two plus two is four. Pretty much wherever. Um, music um, is one of the truly universal art forms. Like every culture has a music. Some cultures may have oral, not written traditions. Some cultures, you know, visual symbols don't translate across different cultures, but every culture has a music. And then of course, religion, every culture has, how did we get here? What is our meaning? You know, those kinds of things. And so just those kinds of just larger things that again, from a Zen perspective, are all very different, but it's an illusion of form. Underneath is all these very basic, fundamental, existential truths. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. um, yeah. they kind of get expounded are the different ways that that cultures and 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 ethnicities and and continents and communities tend to express them. Um, but you know, deep down underneath, there's there's this kind of common truth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I practice Nietzschean Buddhism, so uh, next time we see each other, we'll have to compare notes and yeah. <laughs> we will. Oh, that's so. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you know, uh, what what you have me thinking about now when we talk about the relative nature of so many things, you know, uh, truths not being universal. I'm thinking of, uh, back uh, when the first time uh, we met, uh, we, I think we were uh, doing the Shift Festival at the Kennedy Center some years ago, and I just had to straight up ask you. Is maestra a word you use? I wanted to make sure that I was being as respectful as possible. I wonder if you can uh, tell the people the answer you gave me. <laughs> you know, I I don't remember what I told you. I'm just laughing. <laughs> like like five people asked me that question like just this week. Yeah, and I don't I don't have an answer. I feel like, you know, I, I go back and forth and. Um, me and my nature, the way that I run Black Pearl, no one calls me maestra. You know, you can always tell, like, if someone's a sub in Black Pearl, they say maestra. I'm like, oh, 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 oh. Uh-huh. But, no, <laughs> just, just call me Jerry. Like, we are, you know, I, I'm a little bit in charge and I sign everybody's paychecks. But but from a musical collaborative standpoint, we are a collection of, of equals. You guys are equally gifted and knowledgeable and have expertise in flute and clarinet and violin and timpani. These are not my areas of expertise. My areas of expertise are around bringing all this together, creating a vision, creating, you know, building a coalition around that and executing. And so for me, it isn't a matter of this kind of hierarchy and this honorific. However, in various situations, I will insist upon maestro, um, especially if for whatever reason, I'm getting a little pushback about my authority and am I qualified to be here? And again, that's, that doesn't happen all the time, but if I feel like, let me fend that off immediately and just put this in the formal conversation so we don't forget right. who you're dealing with <laughs> right. and, and why I'm making these decisions and why I'm qualified to be making these decisions. Right, right. And let, you know, but it isn't something that I naturally am like, oh, I am a, you know. Yeah, for the, for the, for the record, you, you uh, back whatever year that was, you told me that maestra is a word for uh, madams. So <laughs> I it, should it use <laughs> dominatrix. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, um, maybe in a different context, but, um. <laughs> but but when you talk about uh, you know when you when you mentioned that you know you encourage uh, the musicians you work with to call you Jerry, 
that sounds different from, you know, the experiences I have with conductors. Are you intentionally trying to dismantle a system or am, or am I thinking too big? Is it just about that person to person uh, collaboration? Well, I think it's both. Sure. I think I think that person to person collaboration is how we dismantle the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and it isn't it isn't like I'm out on some great big huge crusade, but you know, given my track record and my history with Black Pearl, I, pe- I think people, if, if they've done their due diligence and know who I am, kind of know where I'm at coming into this. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think any questions about ability or preparedness are immediately dispelled within the first 30 seconds of me raising my baton and beginning to work with the orchestra. So, <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> and that. And that's that. So yeah. very... Very rarely anymore have I had anyone. And again, you know, some of this is young conductor stuff. You know, orchestras, they just like to mess with us as young conductors. Oh, let me just, you know, poke at this person and see if they cry. And, you know, they just, you know, we're like, you know, substitute teachers in an elementary school classroom. Like mm-hmm. they just sometimes like to, you know, and and not in a, not all the time, I should say, in, in, a, in a mean way. They just, you know, they're kind of having fun and want to get to know you and see like what you're like. Um, and, and so that's fine. Um, you know, I, it's, it's not a problem, but, but there have been just very, very few occasions where I've had to really, um, okay, let's, let's have a, let's have a check here mm-hmm. about who I am and what I'm doing, um, and what I know. And if you have any more questions, I will shut that down too, with my answers <laughs> and, my and my thoroughness. So you can continue to bring it or you can embarrass yourself or we can get back to work and just make music together. So, you know, you have to do what you have to do, but right. with love and, and respect, because again, you have to continue to work with people. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, it's, it's always walking that fine line of being authoritative, but also continuing to create an atmosphere and a working environment where, where people can, can have a little bit of vulnerability as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, as as you said, I'm sure this is in the minority of experiences, but you know things that have have to be spoken to every now and again. I, I want to uh, transition. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra, uh, but I'm I'm wondering. Uh, if you have one of these moments of awakening when it comes to having, you know, been involved in Western classical music for so long and one day realizing, oh, where are the black composers or musicians or conductors? That was certainly the case for me anyway. Did you have a, a moment like that? Well, I, I, I you know, I didn't. I, um, you're a very young, young person, Garrett, but, you know, I, I grew up with the recordings that Paul Freeman had done. Oh, of course. Columbia of the black composers. And so I had that. And so, you know, and again, it was at literally on a record. Um, so, you know, I had that level of knowledge. Um, and, you know, my family and I, we, the lives that we have lived as a family and as individuals, we have often been the only brown people in the boardroom, in the classroom, at the country club, at the whatever. And so for me, it never felt strange that I was the only, It I was mm-hmm. never like, oh, where is everyone else? I, I, part of that is just my personality. I'm just very kind of, you know, not 
not self-absorbed, like I just love myself so much, but I just, you know, um, I'm just about the work more sometimes than about people and yeah. I'm working that. And I think that, like, that's why I like conducting because it forces me to really work on that. But like, I'll just get so absorbed in like a thing. I'm not really paying attention to surroundings. Like I'll just be walking on the street and people are like, hi, Jerry. And just, I, I wasn't even, my eyes were open. I wasn't even, I was like in my thoughts. I wasn't really looking out of my eyes to see this person that I've known for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so I might just, I'm just a little bit like that. And so I think my wake up moment was, was, you know, and, and you know, this story when I, I was told, you know, I basically that's orchestra wouldn't hire me because, you know, the quote um, that, that what this person said was literally, you know, you just don't look like what our audience expects the conductor, the, the maestro to, to look like. And so that was, that was my moment of realization of how much of an outsider I was that no matter all of the qualifications on my resume and experience and mentorship and talent um, that I had, it, it would never really make a difference for a group of people. Um, certainly not every single person, but um, for some people, certainly gatekeepers um, to employment, that was um, a massive consideration and a barrier for them. Mm -hmm. That uh, I, I want to uh, rewind uh, to something you uh, said. The Paul Freeman record. I have one. There's like a, a winged rhinoceros on the on the cover, and it has Saji right. and yeah. It's like very florid. Yes, that's like right. well, that's what I remember about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I have I have that record. Okay, but see, and and the thing is, that's novel to me, but was normal for you coming up. I'm sure there are lots of folks, black musicians my age, who will speak to not having been taught those things. So what does that mean about the way that we approach uh, this art form over generations? We have black folks who were taught and new, and then we have black folks who are just getting to the party, so to speak. <laughs> well, you know, I think <laughs> it is, um, it is part of the, um, this wider historical moment that the lens of who gets to tell history through whose eyes are we viewing history, mm -hmm. whose story is being told throughout history is being seriously re-examined. Um, and that's why you're seeing all of this pushback for so long. There's been a single narrative from a single perspective um, and, and a lot of other perspectives and participation in history has been excluded. Um, and so it is part of, I think, all of our responsibilities. And, and when I say all of our responsibilities, I mean all of ours. It isn't just about, you know, um, white spaces allowing black people and black stories in. It's about black people inviting Asian stories in. It's about mm -hmm. Latin people inviting black stories in. I mean, this is something that we all need to recognize the interconnectedness of everything. Um, and let go of this illusion that we as individuals can do this alone, that one group of people founded and developed and made this country the great nation that it is with its flaws and, and, and the wonderful experiment that it continues to be. Um, and so I think that experiment now, you know, what our next sort of critical phase in this great nation is, how do we really, really embody the values upon which this country was founded? Because it's been a lot of lip service right. up until now. And we've been making little changes here and there and, you know, suffering 
leverage, you know, um, and you know, in, enfranchising African Americans with the vote, the, the you know, the women's right to vote, all these kinds of things, um, you know, uh, it, it marriage equality, you know, so we're 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 getting there in 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 baby steps, and I think the next step is is really is really to to have full enfranchisement and equal opportunity for all, and to understand that the basis of this myth of meritocracy has really been about the the secret and hidden levers of oppression. Yeah, yep. Yeah, like let's be clear about, you know, how systems are put in place to keep people in that place because it's it's the system's responsibility to maintain itself. That's how systems are. They're they're kind of set up to be self-maintaining, self-perpetuating. And so we've created a flawed system, which we need to, you know, begin to re-engage and tinker with in order to, to become a better system for all of us. When you speak to that interconnectivity, uh, you're getting into the Lotus Sutra, you know, passages that I was just reading and that, you know, that that's always coming through for me. Uh, so, you know, speaking of that interconnectedness and the most multiplicity uh, of diversity that you're speaking to, how does Black Pearl address that or engage that? You know, Black Black Pearl, I've been having some really lovely conversations with a lot of people um, about this, with, with whom I had not previously engaged. And so I, I always enjoy having these new perspectives on what I've been doing because, you know, you get so wrapped up in the day-to-day and mm-hmm. in your own, like you're just, you, you get that kind of tunnel vision. And so it's always nice to have what what your work means or triggers for other people in, in, in the best possible way. And so, you know, Black Pearl is um, is my vision of America. I wrote recently in um, uh, an introductory letter to a foundation um, to begin a relationship with them, and I you know, said, "Well, tell us a little bit about your work." And so I, I had drafted an initial kind of, oh, Black Pearl does three concerts and this. And then I, you know, I, and I emailed that. And then I did a second one mm-hmm. about Black Pearl. And, and I said, you know, what makes Black Pearl so interesting is that it is a vision of diversity, equity, inclusion that has been created by people of color. Hmm. And so it doesn't represent a hope for diversity in the future and a plan for diversity at some un, un, you know, undisclosed moment to be you know, determined. Is diversity now? And what that means is it is, um, it is an exposition and how do I say this? It is almost a mirror um, for other people's ideas, perceptions, values, and feelings around race, class, gender, power, and art mm. in America. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's almost like contemporary or like abstract art where you go there and like everybody sees something different in it. You know, people see Black Pearl and on one level, of course, we're performing Mozart and, you know, the Chevalier de Saint-Georges and, and Haydn in a concert. But what you're seeing on stage is an African-American woman. You're seeing 
you know, in the case of when we did the Mozart um, Sinfonia Concertan for violin and viola, two African-American women as the soloists. I don't know that we've ever seen an African-American woman conductor, two African-American women soloists in that, um, in an orchestra of, of Black, white, Asian, Latino, straight, gay, you know, mm-hmm. all the things. And, and so, you know, what does that say about who this art is for? Um, you know, who can, you know, because again, it's, if we're going to talk about the universality of this art form, then, then it has to truly be for everybody. Otherwise that universality is just a claim, um, and not a, not a fact. Um, yeah. Yep. And so it, it is, it is kind of a barometer for people to do a check-in about, Hmm, I've never seen this before. Or, you know, if I close my eyes and, and this happens all the time, people will hear our recordings and not know that there are recordings. I'm like, oh, is that the Philadelphia Orchestra? Nope. And they're like, that's that's Black Pearl. And like the look on their like, mm-hmm. that's like, yeah, I, I mean, yes. Like, yes, we're that good. We sound <laughs> awesome. Um, and what you're hearing is live. This wasn't like in a can somewhere. Right. And we did it like times like this was a performance live in front of people. So, I mean, you know, it takes people a second to kind of gut check about what their ears are hearing, what their eyes are seeing and how they feel about that. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the Philadelphia Orchestra that is, you know, a neighbor to Black Pearl. You have the Curtis Institute, you you know, just these historic infrastructures and institutions. Does it does it help being in that close proximity with with these hallowed halls and, you know, next to that, an orchestra of your own making that reaches that same level, maybe even goes beyond it? You know, it is, uh, you know, I don't know that Black Pearl would be Black Pearl if we were not in Philadelphia. And I I say that because, you know, um, because Curtis is is our neighbor, because Juilliard is up the street, because Peabody is down the road. And we have, we're sitting in this beautiful nexus of, you know, the most talented, best trained classical musicians in the country. Um, um, and, and people come from all over the world to, to train there. Um, and so we were really able to be, um, to function at this level that just utterly dismantled this fallacy of the inverse relationship between diversity and artistic excellence. Mm-hmm. And of course, Oh, if you have, you know, too much, like, oh, we want diversity, but if you have too much, like, we have to make sure that we keep the artistic excellence at a certain level. And so we were just able to just explode that myth by like, look, everybody's from Curtis Julie, whatever. They're all trained to either sub in Philly. Some people from the Philly Orchestra have come and played with us. Mm-hmm. You know, they teach at Curtis or, you know, whatever, like, you know, like Michelle can, you know, she did that Florence yeah. Price with she came to the Philadelphia Orchestra. And so now, you know, and so all these, like, this is the quality that we've always been operating at. And it just took a second for people to be like, oh, like, now we see these things. So now everybody sees these things, but we've been like this from day one. So Black Pearl is, you know, fully formed and continuing to evolve and, you know, really staking its claim in this orchestral ecosystem. But I can't help but to think about what it must have been like building Black Pearl back when it was just an idea, back when you had to write those very first letters asking for money. What was what was all that like for you? You know, Garrett, um, there's a lot of crime. I mean, 
look, let's let's just get in. Let's just get into it. You're in Nietzsche. Like we're going to, you know, we're going to we're going to be in the Sangha together. We're going to be in the brotherhood and we're just going to be in the community and just talk about our truths here. So, so like no when mud, I start, no lotus, you know, struggle towards something greater. Yeah. All of that. All, like all of that was digging to the mud, you know, that <laughs> lotus. But like I, um, you know, so when I started Black Pearl, I, I was getting a divorce and, you know, and that was a good thing. But, mm. you know, it's still hard. You know, I just get all these things together and, and finding all this money. But one of the things I had decided very early on, and, and even when people come to me and they want to start their own nonprofit, the first thing that I say is don't. <laughs> and I know it's unusual, but but a lot of, you know, a lot of artists really what they want to do is is find a support for their projects. And you can always do that by collaborating with someone who has the infrastructure so you don't have to deal with all that. Mm-hmm. Um, starting your own organization is, is a major undertaking. And because I was so ignorant of what I was doing, I just put one foot in front of the other and did it. Um, I have a natural aversion to paperwork and the IRS. So <laughs> like, you know, very like painful for me to just be doing all this. But because we didn't have any money, I didn't have anything to report. And it was just a mission at that point. So all the paperwork stuff was very helpful. And I, and I, I'm gonna, I am going to sh- give a shout out to the state, uh, uh, the Department of State of Pennsylvania and the IRS. I called them with questions like, I don't know that people were super helpful and very nice. So I, don't be afraid of that. Like they are there to help you unless you try to not pay your taxes. And that's a separate issue, but like <laughs> right. if you're on the up and up, they're like, they're there to help you. And they were really very helpful. Um, and I'd made a commitment um, to again, as an African-American business person, to ensure that my business dealings were always on the up and up. And by that, I meant I was never going to do anything unless I could pay for it right now. Mm-hmm. So I didn't say to friends and colleagues, hey, let's do this. And like, once I get the money, I'll be able to pay. No, you're not working for me for free. I'm not doing that to you. I respect you too much to do that. Um, and I know what that feels like myself to not get paid. And so I'm just not going to do that to people. And so I worked very hard to get the money up front. And I was very fortunate to be able to get a grant um, from the state of Pennsylvania um, and a rather significant amount just before the financial collapse of the world in 2008. Mm -hmm. And so at a time when everything else was collapsing, some orchestras were just canceling concerts or seasons, some were folding entirely. I was flush with cash. And so I had the means to be able to hire really, really, really excellent musicians. And, and we did a lot of rehearsal and, and to pay them well for, for their time. And so that was the, you know, the word got out, you know, people, oh, they got money and they pay like, ah, you know, then people, <laughs> yeah. well, and like, and it's a good group. And, and, and so that was kind of how we built our reputation that way with, you know, just legitimacy with the musicians. But the other thing was that, it wasn't an audition process. It was really, um, it was really um, a community that I was building, which I, I, I didn't think about it at the time, but as I look back on it now, we were, we were building a community of people who were really excellent artists, but also really enjoyed playing together. Um, and that happiness and love, again, I'm just a dumb conductor. Like, I just love doing what I do because I can be the boss and tell everybody, doesn't everybody love that? Like, no, apparently they don't. Like I found this, <laughs> found this out that they, you know, it's like, you know, they have to go from concert to concert and, you know, all these different things. And, and so 
what what we have discovered and what's been so nice is this is from the musicians like this is not me talking about this like they tell each other and and the word gets out about black pearl and then you know people tell me what a special place it is to come and play with black pearl um of course we don't have a 52 week season mm-hmm. um it's not like people are you know just making their mortgage payments based upon their work with black pearl but they get paid well for what they do and they love being with each other. It's like a big old music party every time we get together. And yes, there's liquor and I do buy it and we have a great, <laughs> um, and, but, but that's it. Like it's a great big hang with really, really high level music making. How do you approach programming? How, how do, what, what, what's your approach to what the orchestra plays? You know, I, um, yeah, I, I, I sometimes like to give the orchestra and I go like, what do you guys want to do next? They're like, let's do this, let's do this. So, you know, some will just shout out some stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, let's do that. Um, and then I'll look at the budget and be like, yeah, we can manage it. And like whatever venue we're going to be at, um, I can be like, yes, that's big enough. We can handle that. And that'll be wonderful. Um, sometimes the, the, it's, it's based upon who I want to program. Like if there's an artist I want to work with, like, you know, I've known Michelle for years. I'm like, oh my God, let's do the Florence Prize. Okay, we just had to find a date we could do it. Um, or just invite, you know, like Amanda Collins Escalante, who just had her baby, wah, um, to like, you know, let's do a horn concerto, like let's do this. And and um, um, I'm thinking flutist, I'm just blanking, so terrible. Um, Julieta Currenton, like let's oh, do a flute. Yeah. All these wonderful artists who, my gosh, if, but for their skin color would be, you know, right. I mean, at that level. And so like, let me give them a chance. Um, and so I, I just love the concerto soloists idea where the people within the orchestra get a chance to come on out front and show their stuff. And then we get to support our colleagues that yeah. way. Um, I always feel like the concerto, like the, the 2 T element of that in the orchestra is always much more sensitive when it's one of their own colleagues. Well, who, are, of course. who are, um, But then, you know, more generally speaking, I think our programming is almost always tied to something external to classical music or to something that classical music should be responding to in, you know, in current events or something like that. Sometimes we'll be like at the Barnes Foundation is a really beautiful venue partner for us in both programming as well as just a presenting um, partner. Mm-hmm. And, and they'll have an art exhibit and it'll be focused on like women artists of this period and like, okay, what can we pair with that? Or um, just, other kinds of things like that. But, um, you know, it, it, it's always about, you know, going back to the conversation that, that you and I had had earlier in the podcast where we were talking about just knowledge of Black composers and how yeah. do we find out about that and who gets to tell the story of history. Like when we did that concert where we had the, the two African-American women soloists with the Mozart concertant, we'd also done um, a Haydn symphony and a work by the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. And that was our Black History Month concert. Now, it seems a little odd having only one Black composer and like two stalwarts of like, (laughs) but the point was we wanted to show that these three great artists were in conversation with each other and they were historically present with each other and dealt with each other. And that that's maybe part of the story that people didn't know, like aficionados who may know Haydn and Mozart may not known about the Chevalier de Saint-Georges. So he was new to them. Right. For people new to classical music, like, oh man, this is a brother doing all this stuff back with Haydn and Mozart. And he did all this stuff. Like, I did not know that. So it's like, it brings all these disparate kind of audience constituency groups together 
around the same music and everybody learns something new. And so it is, it isn't about history or her, or her story or black history or whatever. It's about the story and making sure everyone is part of that big story. Yeah. And, you know, when, when you talk about uh, the importance of folks seeing that, you know, seeing the people and engaging the music, you know, I can't help. I, I pulled up your uh, the, uh, Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra's mission statement here. You know, you talk about going beyond just that spectatorship and actually engaging audiences and involving them. I wonder if you can speak a little bit more to that. <laughs> um, so... You know, when that orchestra told me, you know, you don't look like what our audience expects the conductor to look like that, that was, um, it was super, super painful. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I was an angry black woman for a few months, like just filled with rage and venom. And I just wasn't a pleasant person to be around. I fully acknowledge it. I acknowledged it at the time, like, ah, like just, ah, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, But then, you know, once that rage tempered and I was kind of able to think straight, you know, rage is an incredible source of energy. Um, And I think one of the things that we have to teach ourselves, and I always make sure that I, you know, when I'm working with my my daughter, you know, you can be angry and that's great. um, But what are you going to do with that? Like, what what are you going to do with that level of of rage, you know, as an adult, um, you know, the I think we see a lot of that happening in, in you know, rage being dealt with in incredibly destructive and, and quite frankly, devastatingly fatal ways in America's high schools, that, you, you know, with the mm-hmm. shootings. It's, just, it's a tragedy in this country. And because I think people, we don't really talk, I mean, it's, it's a negative emotion, certainly, but but how do you deal with that? And how do you transform that? And that really is the, the story behind the name of Black Pearl is transforming that grit into grace. Mm. That's really what you have to do. And so it isn't so much about um, um, uh, the diamond path. It's about the pearl path. I and mean, first you have that clarity, like mm-hmm. a diamond, the, the Vajra clarity, you know, the Vajra chakra. But I mean, then you go on and like, what do you do once you have that clarity? And you must... And that's that's the work that must be done. That's that's what I call the motiyana, the pearl path, if you will. Um, and so uh, the, you have to. Um, when when I thought about that statement, I decided, okay, now that I've got black pearl, I'm going to make everyone a conductor. So okay, I, I'm not going to get a job because I don't look like a conductor. I'm going to turn everyone into a conductor. Mm. So. Um, you know, I didn't want to do traditional education stuff, which everybody wanted us to do. Like, can you teach kids? Oh, no, we're not teaching. Because, you know, Stanford's got his play on film. He was having his stuff started. And like, like we can all collaborate, but that just isn't what we do. I don't want to dilute right. our mission. But I still wanted to do something. I'm like, okay, I know how to conduct. I'll teach everybody how to conduct. And so we just, I'm like just putting batons in people's hands, like wherever we go. And like, we bring them up on stage and they get to conduct a real orchestra. And so we did a festival of this. We used Beethoven Five because, again, I wanted it to be immediately recognizable for sure. people, even people who've never been to an orchestra concert. You, you, Beethoven Five, ba, 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 almost everybody, you know, on the street. But that's some place to start a young conductor gesture of syncopation right off the bat. And I mean, <laughs> it's some craziness. It's some craziness. And so what I love is, you know, we but we did this. I mean, adults. We had a guy come up and you can, you know, these are pictures we have on our website. This guy came up, um, he had had a leg amputation. So he's on two crutches and he's doing this. We've had people in real, I mean, everybody. 
anybody who wants to come up, they can do it. And, and we've had people who come up like, oh, I like the Roger Norrington tempos. I'm going to be like, all right, sir, have at it. And then they kept <laughs> flailing. And, you know, one guy said to me, he was like, you know, this is really hard. I don't even understand. Like, you make it look so easy. Like, he was genuinely confused about how if I can do this, why can't he do this? Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, discounting the fact that this is my job and I'm like trained to do this, but like, what do you think is happening up here? You think I'm just getting lucky up here with all these musicians this whole time? <laughs> like, not not to say the conductors don't get lucky sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's just be real honest. Yeah, sometimes, oh, that was a straight up four, four bar, not a five, four bar. Okay, right. sure. Oh, all right, I'm back on. But like, you know, it is, but it is, it, it's dispelling those myths. It, it's kind of a peek behind the curtain, like in Oz, like, why is this a whole mystery that we have to hold on to that we're just doling out at our discretion? Mm-hmm. Like, no, bring the people in, let them feel this for themselves. I mean, this is, again, this is how you're seeding the next generation of future lovers of classical music when they're like, oh man, I got to conduct an orchestra when I was seven. Like, who, like, that's some craziness. I would have loved that when I was seven. But like, here these kids go, here these adults go. Um, and so it changes, it changes things. I mean, I, I can honestly say that, you know, years of doing this in Philadelphia, we, we have changed, we have changed that town in, in the way that a lot of those institutions um, engage with the community, um, you know, and I'm happy to say that they've taken our ideas, our award-winning ideas, mm-hmm. <laughs> and used them for themselves. Right. We all know we did it first. There's no acknowledgement like, oh, Black Pearl, that was so great. That was a great idea. Like, we're going to, no, just, oh, we're going to do our own. Like, oh, we came up with this way. I mean, you didn't, but that's fine. The point is you're doing it now. Mm-hmm. The point is you finally figured out that you can take a risk and letting the community love on you. And like, it won't break your orchestra. It won't break your, you know, your beautiful venue. It won't break anything. Mm-hmm. It, it creates greater abundance and more love. Like, you know, that's the spiritual economics, you know, sharing love and sharing resources doesn't create less. It creates more. So when you, when we talk about really engaging the community, one area that I try to push uh, at least the well-established institutions toward is the idea of engaging the community musically. So yes, most people recognize uh, the first movement of Beethoven five. They also recognize the music of Jay-Z and Alicia Keys. And you know, these, these are folks that you have collaborated with. How do you, um, how do you balance between, uh, you know, all of our love for the canon, as it were, versus really giving community members an opportunity to see an orchestra performing music that they can sing along to right now. Let me tell you, Garrett, I think one of my favorite concerts we ever did was just after Prince passed. Mm. And we did a whole Purple Festival at the Dell Music Center. And it was, you know, that we had a dress code, like the orchestra, we're going to wear like purple, like you had to have purple on you somewhere and mm-hmm. the whole audience come in purple. And because Prince himself was such a genius and had so much like really lush orchestrations to a lot of his own stuff. I mean, it was just like an easy gig for us to like put that together and people, oh my gosh, Garrett. They were in so, worship. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, it was a real thing. And people are like, well, you should do that again. And, you know, I mean, it, but that was, but again, you know, when we talk about the canon, 
and expanding the canon. I mean, you know, we talk about the classical canon, but there's like a pop canon. Sure. There is, you know what I'm saying? Like there are these geniuses in these different genres. And for me, I don't distinguish between genius in one genre versus genius in another genre. Like to me, like Mozart and, and Prince versus B.B. King, um, you know, that like for me, it's like, okay, there's Maria Callas, Patsy Cline, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, you know, Paul Fitzgerald, like, you know, they're just geniuses in their own realms. Um, and I don't distinguish between those because, it, you know, I, there's there's opera singers that some of whom on their best days can't put like what Patsy Klein has got in her. Listen. I mean, <laughs> it's some real stuff like what Patsy can do with that. Like, oh, my gosh, it's amazing. I'm writing that down. We're going to have to transition out with some Patsy Klein because you just inspired me there. <laughs> but but so so to that, you know, when we talk about not distinguishing uh, between geniuses, the industry does, you know, as much as we talk about that, you know. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm returning back to a similar question. How um, does Black Pearl dismantle that? I mean, can we expect to hear, um, you know, from the so-called country or the so-called pop or so-called R&B genres within that space? Well, you know, here's what I can tell you. I don't know if we're going to be doing any pop collaborations anytime soon, but you know, it's only because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of on the road these days. Sure. And like, I, I've got to, I've got to, I have to segment my time a little bit, but, but here's what I can tell you what we're, we're in the, in the process of developing a, a really lovely um, initiative to to provide necessary resources for up and coming, you know, women composers and composers of color. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, you know, you'll get these MIDI realizations of someone's piece. And, you know, obviously you're seasoned, you can listen through the awful realization to get to, you know, the gist of what this person is trying to do. But it's not the best calling card when you're a young composer, full of talent, full of promise, needing to get your work out there in a serious way. And so how can we help connect publishers, music librarians, um, and and people in the industry together? And so hopefully we're going to be able to put together um, a nice opportunity for for people to to, um, more senior composers to recommend some younger colleagues, for them to submit some works, and for us to just be able to spend some really quality time on their works, get them in the can, archival recordings, um, of course, we'll broadcast or something like that, you know, like young composers of whatever. Um, and then, but then allow them to use that for, for promotional purposes and, and make sure that they're connected to publishers, you know, if they self-publish or people who can help in that process in terms of distribution and making sure that we make it easy for orchestras to find them and to get the resources to perform them. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I do have one more question, uh, but before I throw that at you, how can folks learn more about the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra? How can they donate to the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra and check out what's coming up? Sure. I, I, you can find me on Venmo. Um, no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> First of all, thank you for the question. Yes. Uh, Black Pearl, our, our website is uh, blackpearlco.org. That's blackpearlco.org. Um and we, we have some stuff on SoundCloud. Um, uh, there's a few things on our on our website that I probably just need to turn over and, and just put some new new clips on there. Of course, um, you can find us on, on YouTube. We don't have a dedicated YouTube channel, but we have um, our performances are out there on, on YouTube. Um, 
And, you know, donating to Black Pearl is also easy. There's a donate button on our website. Um, and, and that's all really, really greatly appreciated. Um, you know, supporting these organizations. And, you know, I, I did a really nice um, interview, you know, that, that Afa Dworkin had, had moderated with, with me and, and Alex Lang and Melissa White um, and uh, uh, Jennifer Arnold and talking about, you know, these organizations that have been championing diversity and innovation and, and in authentic ways um, for years and, and that who continue to struggle. And, and one of the things that I, you know, often had kind of closed with, you know, what, what would you like to see Black Pearl in, you know, in the next year or two? I said, I'd like to see us with a sizable endowment. And I say that, you know, everybody laughed. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm actually serious. And, and the reason I'm serious is because, you know, what would it look like if we actually funded success in diversity rather than funding, funding getting an A for effort in diversity? Mm -hmm. Or even hopes for it. As you were speaking or, to, or this is what it looks it. like now. We're here. Right. What it looks like now. And so here, what would happen if you funded actuality in that and stopped funding, hoping for the future without actually really accomplishing it? Um, that, that I think, j just that shift in dollars and, and priorities I think you would see the pace of change rapidly increase exponentially if people no longer got money just for trying. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if someone listens to this and uh, you check the website and you have a $100 million donation, I mean, at least give me a finder's fee or something. I mean, let I me mean, hold $20. Come on, put you in charge foundation. Come on, son. <laughs> Um, and, and, and let me end your, and your bassoon chair will be endowed for, you know, <laughs> of course, of course. In perpetuity, of course. <laughs> well, so to, to, to wrap us up, you know, we've been brushing up against, uh, Buddhism throughout the conversation and, uh, mm -hmm. something, you know, that I, I really honor. One of the reasons that I can really get down and vibe with Nietzsche and Buddhism is that it affirms the Buddha nature of all people. It may be buried under a lot of things, but, um, it's there. Um, that leads me to the idea of these Western classical arts, the idea that they can engage all people, but the reality that it just doesn't. I mean, I, I wonder, just to wrap us up, do you see this art form as one that one day through representation, through shifts in programming, whatever it takes, is it an art form that can really engage all people? So let me let me answer this this way um the problem with classical music has never been the music it has always been with the people and so I, I don't think about whether or not the art form can engage in the future i think about whether or not people will will begin to um see the buddha nature in each other mm. uh, and use the music to facilitate that engagement with each other Jerilyn Johnson leading the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra there in the first movement of Beethoven's Eighth Symphony. This is the thing, Scott. We don't play a lot of the Western classical on this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's refreshing to hear those sounds, and there's a lot out of 
uh, a lot to be taken out of the Beethoven symphonies. I, at this point in my career, I've performed all of them, several of them multiple times, especially the fifth and the ninth. So there are things to love and appreciate. But I think the point is we center that so much, right. we can't really get that appreciation because y'all are just milking this dry. With that being said, you know, I feel like there is a place for that music when we talk about renewing concert spaces, even in changing the way that uh, the audience to stage uh relationship plays out and then when you have someone with a really unique perspective like uh, jerry lynn johnson approaching and engaging this music and seeing it performed by an orchestra that really portrays the diversity of philadelphia and you know the the broader east coast there's stuff to dig in there so it's a both and conversation it's not about just cutting out all of the beethoven which you know i i will be transparent and say i feel like the industry could stand to do uh, certainly for a few seasons and hearing really great interpretations of it like that as performed by, you know, the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra is is something of note. So shout out to them and huge thanks to Gerilyn Johnson for joining me uh, this week for the third movement. Before we move on uh, to the final movement, I wanted to ask you one of the things that uh, Maestro Gerilyn Johnson speaks to is that sometimes she has to get people together. You know, they see a black woman sure. and, and they make certain assumptions and, you know, she has to be prepared to do what she has has to do. Do you find that is a part of your work? And what I'm thinking about specifically are the digital interactions, the the emails. Do you care to get somebody together anymore? Do you feel like there are opportunities where you need to, or is it all water off a duck's back? There are some that I feel like I need to respond <laughs> you say just give me a minute <laughs> you know like it's mm -hmm. it's okay so this email is going to take a little bit of time i'll get back to that in a second you right know? <laughs> uh, typically if a poison pen note comes through and they sign their name to it i'll respond if they don't want to put their name to it or if it's from some bullshit email address yeah if you, you don't, don't even worry about if it. if you don't have the courage to sign your name to what you said then how can i take what you said seriously yeah yeah well so sometimes you need to do that and and mm. maestro johnson spoke to that well uh this week scott uh there is another uh diverse or not a diverse i shouldn't even say diverse orchestra an all-black orchestra who's making history the gateways festival orchestra is playing Carnegie Hall this week, uh, which apparently makes it the first classical all-black orchestra to play that space. We can I, I've played Carnegie several times. The one one let me see. I'm trying to think. The first or second time I played Carnegie, it was with an all-black ensemble. Oh. Now we were playing hip hop. It was the Ill Harmonic. So sure. maybe that's what they mean. You know, the novelty of seeing a hundred percent black orchestra playing music within that Western classical framework. Um, and it, Go ahead. Isn't this going to be Anthony Pointer's debut? Uh, I think it might be his Carnegie Hall debut. Yeah, so. shout out to Anthony uh, Parther. You know, a great friend of mine. He's in my phone. I can call him right now. But um, oh, let's you bring know. him on. Yeah, <laughs> you're live. I asked him to come on a little while ago, and he was a little busy. You know, yeah, so we'll I have to. He would be. I'll, I'll have to, you know, revisit that conversation. But you know, he he conducted uh, the Mandalorian and Boba uh, Fett, uh, yeah. Boba Fett, all, all sorts of stuff. I think he conducted um, Seeing Red. Maybe you've seen advertisements for the new Maybe. Disney Pixar movie that everyone is loving. Anyway, uh, I, I want I want to say a few words about uh, this history 
in the making, the Gateways Festival Orchestra uh, playing this space to get us into it. Um, I'm going to um, use a uh, a really trill piece of music by uh, Stravinsky. I'm sure you've heard of uh, A Soldier's Tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Lis- yeah, I always yeah. forget the, the French title. Uh, the I was a part of a, a Gateways performance of it. It's one of those tunes that you got to look at, you know, th- this yeah. is a bear <laughs> gotta, of a piece count. of music, yeah. but performing yeah. it with the gateways, with gateways musicians is really a crowning achievement of my life. I think we sounded great. We're all black and we're all excellent doing this thing. So we're going to uh, get into the fourth movement by hearing a bit of that performance here. <laughs> one of those dances, devil's dances, as performed by myself and other members of the Gateways Music Festival Orchestra. That was back in 2015. All right. So yesterday I was seeing people on my timeline post about um, getting to the airport or making it to Rochester to begin the rehearsals and all, you know, just a really exciting time. And on the other side of that, I was getting DMs, uh, a couple texts and one phone call about, you know, people saying, oh, well, I'm sad that I didn't get the call or I hate that I don't get to be a part of this historic moment. You know, I'm black. I've been fighting this battle for so long and I don't get to be a part of this. So I posted something to my social media that I want to read here. I said, good luck to all of the musicians traveling to New York this week for the historic Carnegie Hall performance featuring the Gateway Symphony Orchestra. I'll be with you in spirit. To all of the black orchestral musicians not traveling to New York this week, I see you. You are important. You are vital. You are also history in the making. When this event, when this concert was announced over a year ago, I made a point and I'm on the um, I'm on the uh, artistic advisory for the Gateway's Festival Orchestra. I made the point to say, I've played Carnegie. There are a lot of people who want a chance and an opportunity to do something like this. Let's make sure those bassoonists get priority over me being involved. And I'm very happy to see that the bassoonists performing are ones who uh, are younger than me and mm-hmm. and uh, haven't had the opportunity to perform with the Gateways Orchestra. So um, I'm, I'm really happy about that. At the same time, I understand and recognize all of the people, some of the even local people, you know, who wouldn't have to be flown in that feel away about not being able to participate in this thing. So I I just wanted to make a point on my social media and here on Triloquy to just name the fact that we see you. Orchestral music was not built to be inclusive. It was built to be exclusive. That's just a part of it. So I think that's a conversation that we need to explore as we talk about equity, as we're talking about demonstrating and platforming uh, Black talent and Black musicianship. Is a strict orchestral paradigm the best way to do it, considering the fact that you have to have people that you leave out? I'm not sure exactly what the alternative looks like, but it's a conversation to explore. But even beyond that, I feel like our success as activists, as people of color in this field, the allies and the accomplices, it uh, it really depends on us being united in these goals and really affirming each other everywhere we are within the infrastructure of change and, and all of these things. 
you don't, I, I, I can't ask you to imagine being a black musician who doesn't get to be a part of this thing. But what I will ask you to expound upon a little bit is being one of the change makers, being one of the people actively working toward dialogue and renewal of art spaces and not always being at the center of these conversations or always feeling like you are uh, the one being recognized as one of these change makers. Um, can you speak to taking the back seat and that still being a vital part of the work of transforming orchestral spaces, art spaces, classical music? For me, if I were able to give up my platform, I think that that would be a step in the positive direction for change because I do not want to be 65 years old and telling you stories about Sibelius and Beethoven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the one to be the voice of the change. Yeah. So uh, that's what I think. That's one of the things that I think needs to happen is some of the people who are a little long in the tooth, who've been doing this for, for forever, need to stand stand uh, aside and let some younger folks in there and breathe some life into the thing. I agree with you. And what Scott is saying is not a sub because he don't know y'all, but I'll speak to some of the black orchestral musicians based on what you've said. Some of us have had the opportunities. Some of us have done the Carnegie gigs. Some of us have enjoyed the just enriching experience of being among ourselves and being within our art. And sometimes we have to step aside and make sure other folks get the opportunity. There are so many people um, who felt seen and felt validated by my social media statements, you know, just affirming the fact that everyone's work is important. And even if you don't get to participate in the most front-facing, forward-leaning, historic moments as it relates to decolonizing this field, it doesn't mean you aren't a vital part of it. So I want to shout out all of the musicians performing in Carnegie Hall this week. You know, for the record, Scott, I didn't like the idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying too much. I didn't like the idea of running straight to Carnegie. I thought it would have been really cool to see the Gateways Festival Orchestra at somewhere like the Apollo Theater or mm, or, or, something, or something that like that. Sense. At the same time, I understand that this is a step that needs to be made for many people, a door that needs to be open. John Batiste is uh, having a world premiere at this concert, so it's historic in many ways and on many fronts. And I honor all of the musicians who have taken on the charge of battling COVID and putting on your masks and, and doing everything that you have to do to make this performance possible. I honor you. And I honor all of the Black classical musicians, all the classical musicians of color, and all the accomplices and allies who have to watch this historic moment from the sidelines. We can't always be at the center, but that doesn't mean the work we're doing is completely invalid or or not important. Um, I see you. You are vital. You are history. Happy 420, everyone. If you're feeling upset about it still, light up a joint. You know, if you if you need lessons, I'll teach you. You know, just do whatever you can to to contextualize all of these feelings, all of these vital feelings, all of these valid feelings um in the broader context of history. I feel like I'm kind of going in in a in a circle here, Scott, but basically what my point is is I understand the hurt 
of not being there for the change. There are many things that happen um, that have happened at NPR since I've separated from that organization that are really great, that are good moves. You know, artists, new composers being celebrated through new programming. Of course, I wish I could be there to lead that charge, but I understand the role that I played in making that possible. So, so again, to all of these uh, musicians not playing Carnegie Hall, you are a part of what made this possible uh, by teaching, you know, the Suzuki strings, by uh, being the high school or middle school teacher, you know, playing in your local orchestra, dogging it out on the um, audition front, being visible at, at conferences like Sphinx and Color of Music. All of that is important. And all of that played a huge role in this event finally happening in 2022, and hopefully uh, not the last time something like it will happen. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Get high. We'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.